Hi, this is Dr. Ali Sharma with a trigger warning for everyone. You may hear us speaking about life experience in this podcast that have meaning for you, that may be difficult to hear, or that may affect your loved ones. As always, we encourage you to seek help from a licensed mental health professional or other healthcare provider with any questions you may have about what you're going through. Everything in this podcast is for informational purposes only, and it's not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please don't delay seeking help because of something you hear on Model Mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma. And I'm Bridget Malcolm. And this is Model Mentality, a podcast where we are opening up the dialogue on mental health, one conversation at a time. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Let's Get Real with Dr. Ali and Bridget Malcolm or Model Mentality. Today we are discussing our episode with Natasha Silverbell covering addiction, substance use disorders and alcohol use disorders. So we're really excited to be giving... um, this new format ago, which we're calling Let's Get Real. And it's a chance for us to reflect on each long form interview and podcast episode, give you our takeaways and a chance to answer questions about the clinical topics that came up. So Bridget, um, you know, when I reflect on Natasha's episode, I think what stands out to me is, you know, she and I were connected uh, because of clinical work and to support people who are in recovery and people who um, are wanting to be in therapy or need additional support. And, you know, as I got to know her, I understood that she herself was in recovery and had been a model. And, you know, as we interviewed her, my takeaways are first, you know, she started using drugs to be more accepted, um, to socially fit in. And presumably there was a lot of anxiety in not socially fitting in. But that gateway experience, um, that entry into drug use, um, started a cycle that was just really difficult to break. And as she, as time went on and with the company she kept, uh, the alcohol use, the substance use, it sustained itself over time and it became really dangerous. And in speaking to her in the podcast, she didn't really, um, she didn't know what was going on at the time, didn't have that awareness didn't realize what she was avoiding or escaping to. It was sort of a an alternate reality, so to speak. And that is what happens. And and yet now we speak to her and her life has been completely turned around. So the other takeaway is that you know, there might be a lot of people out there who are using substances, who are u- using alcohol, who are in a maladaptive pattern, um, but maybe someone know that this is not working. And to hear her story is just evidence that recovery can bring on so many positive side effects in one's life. Um, but the thought of recovery, uh, perhaps to someone in the state that she was in, is a really difficult place to get to, and you have to have insight into it. So the hope in telling her story is that those who are what we call pre-contemplative will consider um, thinking about recovery or thinking about sobriety and thinking about getting help. That's the most important thing. So now, Bridget, your takeaways. Thank you, Ali. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. There were a lot of questions that came up for me listening to Natasha's episode. And, you know, as someone who is also a model and has had her own issues with substance abuse, like, 
yeah, I just have a lot of questions that I kind of want to ask you about what defines a disorder, like when it is so okay, you know, when it's not impacting on your life versus when it is, like, what is that line? Um, so yeah, I have a lot of questions that I want to ask you and let's just jump right in, right? Question number one, in your practice, what is the main difference between alcohol use disorder and then someone who uses alcohol in an unhealthy way? Very good question. So, you know, the term alcohol use disorder is a newer term that people may not be familiar with. I know before we got on, like there's other terms that people use like alcoholic, alcoholism, um, addiction, right? So there definitely is a difference between someone who has an alcohol use disorder versus someone who uses alcohol, right? And there are several clinical criteria And I think it's nice to actually read those out so that people understand what the difference is. So we have this classification system of disease um, called the DSM-5. It's our manual. And just to read from that so you know, there has to be a pattern of alcohol use that occurs within a 12-month period and is exhibited by at least two of the following that I'm going to read. So first, alcohol is taken in large amounts or over a larger period than intended. Second, a persistent desire to cut down or unsuccessful efforts to cut down. Third, a great deal of energy and time spent using alcohol, recovering from alcohol, trying to get alcohol. Um, Fourth, cravings for alcohol, urge uh, or desire to use. Fifth, uh, alcohol use that actually impacts your ability to fulfill major obligations, whether that relates to work, school, or home. Uh, Sixth, continued alcohol use despite the impact, the negative impact on one's life. Seven, um, giving up or reducing things in your life related to social relationships, work or things that you love because of alcohol use. Eighth, uh, using alcohol despite conditions that are physically hazardous. So thinking about driving, for example, driving while drinking, uh, which we know is dangerous. Um, Nine, Uh, continuing to use alcohol despite someone knowing that it is a problem in their life, both psychologically or physically or related to other things in their life. And then 10, tolerance, uh, which means that you need more of a substance or more alcohol to have the desired effect. And then withdrawal, right, which we could talk about. I mean, there's specific criteria of withdrawal. And so that's that gives you a sense like you have to clinically for classification of that disease, you need to have at least two of those, but there's a lot of harmful effects of alcohol on one's life versus just maybe occasionally having a beer to unwind. Um, That's very different than all the things I mentioned. Awesome, thank you. Um, Why are people drinking more these days? Obviously I know COVID-19 and lockdown has had a huge effect on that, but yeah, like why boredom? What have you been seeing on your end? Yeah, so I I work part-time for a health tech firm and I work closely with a substance abuse addiction expert. We were talking about this. You know, I think just let's go down the basics. We are at home and what is easily accessible? Alcohol. It's cheap. You can buy it anywhere. There's no restrictions except age, right? And it's something that you just go into your fridge or your cabinet and lean on. So I think it's an easy fix um, in a time where there is a lot of anxiety and stress and confinement within the household. So that's the first thing. Um, And I think that 
why are people drinking? So you can imagine, right, with all of the changes of COVID and also changes to our livelihood, financial distress, household changes, and overall uncertainty of what's going on, people have been under a lot of stress and continued and prolonged stress, which, which can be depleting over time or has led to anxiety and insomnia. So what do people do? You can self-medicate anxiety, right? We know that alcohol temporarily could reduce anxiety in most people, some people, uh, depending on the severity. And again, it's an easy fix. But when is it a problem? When you're doing that too much, when it's starting to have an impact on you, when withdrawal is an issue. I mean, you, you, we know all the places where this can become a real issue. Um, so that's what I'm seeing. And, you know, we also know from studies that rates of substance use, alcohol, overeating have been soaring through the pandemic. You mentioned anxiety. Um, why, why is it so much worse? Why is anxiety so much worse when you've been drinking the night before? Like a hangover is bad enough, but then the anxiety and just the gloom that comes with it and also the terror around like, for at least for me, like, what did I say last night? But like, yeah, why is it? Is there like a chemical reason? Yeah. So the simplest way to put it is that alcohol is a central nervous system depressant, right? So it brings you down. And when it wears off, you have the opposite effect. It can overactivate you. Um, it's more complicated than that. But I think I'm just thinking about the episode we did in season one with Dougie. And he spoke about it so clearly that it took him a while to figure out that he actually overall globally was more anxious when he would go on these drinking binges. And I see that quite a bit um, as a pattern, but it might take a lot of people to figure that out. And then there are other complications, like does someone have an underlying anxiety disorder that's perhaps perhaps exacerbated by you know patterns of um, using and then withdrawal? Um, is there, are there other reasons for stress playing into it? But yes, there's definitely a vulnerability in, in the withdrawal period. And we see that quite a bit. I remember I used to try and get around it by like, drinking something that was more of an up-up, drinking something like tequila, like as a, I'd be like, this will beat it because this is an upper. As long as I don't drink gin, that's like a depressant, but like it's all alcohol and it all affects our body the same way, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we know that anxiety is one of the many components of alcohol withdrawal physiologically. And if you're curious about all of the others, I'm happy to list them. There's something called the CWA scale, which we use in medicine. And actually just to tell you, um, here, when when like in the medical ER, let's say we're monitoring someone for alcohol withdrawal, we look for nausea and vomiting and the extent of it. We look for tremor, uh, sweating, anxiety, feeling agitated and fidgety, having tactile disturbances. So what that means, like itching, pins and needles, burning, numbness. Some people say they feel like bugs are crawling under their skin or on their skin. Uh, auditory disturbances. So. Um, being more aware of sounds, being more frightened of sounds, um, hearing things that are not there, and sometimes visual disturbances, light appearing too bright, light hurting your eyes, or seeing anything that's disturbing that's not there, um, headache, fullness in the head, uh, being a little bit disoriented, like not knowing what day it is, where a person is, or who they are. So all of those things we evaluate clinically when someone is coming in or we're assessing for alcohol withdrawal. You're laughing. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm like, Jesus. Okay. So tell us what you experienced. Uh, yeah. Tell us what you've experienced. Well, it's interesting because like I basically, when I quit, I, I quit, I didn't have any physical 
withdrawals. But as you were speaking and listing all of those things, I'm like, yeah, in hangovers, I I would experience not all of them, but at different times, I would experience different things. I remember like loud noises if I was hungover would make me have a panic attack. I would just be like so terrified by it. Um, definitely shaking, sweating, I mean, vomiting. I just kind of assumed that was what was coming with hangovers past the age of 21. Um, but obviously that's not like, obviously that's not part of it. And obviously that is a sign that you're drinking far too much. But it's, it's interesting. Um, like I said, when I stopped, I stopped and I didn't have any of the other physical cravings or anything like that. Yeah. So the hangover phase is the period when people are in withdrawal, right? And oh. <laughs> let's say someone has, yeah, severe you know, alcohol use disorder. The, the reason for detox is to get you through that hangover phase or the withdrawal of alcohol, that phase carefully um, so that adverse things don't happen like seizures, coma, and in rare cases, death. There's something called delirium tremens, DTs, that can be potentially fatal that we always look for. It's just severity of alcohol withdrawal, and it needs to be treated. So the news here is that if you are a heavy drinker and you want to uh, cut down on your alcohol, but you think you may have any of the withdrawal symptoms, first of all, speak to your medical doctor, but do it safely. There's a lot of treatment out there, detox centers. It should be done under clinical monitoring just to make sure none of those adverse consequences occur. Because alcohol withdrawal is one of those things that can be fatal. And a lot of people don't know that, but may feel like you're describing, may feel the effects of being in withdrawal and have some familiarity with it. Right. So if you're listening, it's not normal to have hangovers that bad every time you drink. <laughs> and that's maybe something to look at because I just learned something um, and had my mind blown a little bit two years sober. <laughs> um Okay. Do you ever see people who previously have been problem drinkers um, or people who have overindulged for periods of times and it was kind of disrupting their lives? Have you ever seen them return to drinking without consequence? I think there are people who have full-blown alcohol use disorder who, if they have a drink or two, it really triggers a relapse, right? Often will do that. And there are others who may have an underlying, let's say, anxiety or mood disorder that perhaps were using alcohol to self-medicate and to treat the symptoms of, I'm just using anxiety and depression or mood disorders as an example, because the underlying condition, the anxiety, depression, stress, mood disorder was not being adequately treated. And sometimes I have seen that if you target what is underlying, that is the reason for reaching out for the drink, you resolve that, sometimes the alcohol will disappear, right? Because you don't need it anymore. You're well treated. Um, but it's very important to figure that out with your provider, your doctor, uh, because the risk of relapse is real uh, in taking a drink after a period of sobriety. And, and also we know, I mean, just as a side point, we know that the process of recovery is a process. It's relapsing and remitting. It's challenging. And that's also okay. You know, as clinicians, we know that that's, that's a part of it. And of course, the goal, you know, as you're talking about with sobriety is abstinence, um, but it can be a, a roadmap to get there. I love that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I do fit all the criteria as someone with alcohol, alcohol use disorder. 
However, I definitely fit the criteria like completely of someone who was using it to not be present and not feel and not deal with things in my life. And now, like after two years, I, I feel really secure and I feel great. And my life is so awesome and big. And I'm like, whoa, it's amazing. But I have no desire to go back to drinking. And that's what's really been interesting because I kind of thought that when I'd start to feel better, I'd be like, right, well, I can have a drink or two. But like, I just don't want it. It's like, why would I risk losing everything? Why would I risk? I don't know. I, I just don't want to be hung over ever again. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I'm really, really happy. Well, no, this, what you're talking about is I think something really important to pull out, which is there are so many benefits of sobriety. It, the transition to get there might be really difficult. And if people are listening who are pre-contemplative or contemplating quitting drinking or substances, I think to hear Bridget talking about what the benefits are, which are so many, because you realize what you've been neglecting because of alcohol or substance use. Uh, and that is a reason to try it. I can vouch for that for sure. That was actually one of my questions, like at least on a anecdotal level, like my skin is so much better. My energy is so much better. I'm so much better at knowing what I need in a moment and asking for it. I have, I'm much more optimistic. I'm happier. I'm fitter. I I had my body weight hasn't changed. It's been, you know, I lost a little bit of weight at the beginning of sobriety and now I've just been the same size for two years, which is kind of unheard of for me. My eating disorder voice in my head has gotten very quiet and I just have like awesome relationships now. And the best part of all, I think, is the confidence that came from realizing that I can socialize without getting drunk because that I used to have a lot of anxiety around the fact that I knew I couldn't socialize without drinking because I was so anxious about it, which would then compound the anxiety. And then I'd wake up the next day and be like, oh, you did it again. You weren't able to socialize without a drink. And now it's like, oh, that's what I was afraid of. Like, that's kind of hilarious. Now I feel a lot of empathy for me. I had a lot of un things I wasn't dealing with, but no, I can 10 out of 10 vouch for it. It has changed my life for the better. Um, I wanted to ask you about ways people can stop. Um, because obviously there are 12 step programs that have been very effective. Uh, could you speak to a little bit of that? And can people stop without the use of a 12 step program and be happy, healthy, and recovered? So this depends a little bit on the clinical picture of where someone is at and everyone is different. And I always recommend um, seeing a provider could be, you could start with your primary care provider or GP uh, or a specialist. You can go to a licensed mental health professional or a substance use specialist to really get a sense of where you are and what the treatment options are, because they really should be tailored or custom made for each person. But the, the options are medications, uh, behavioral therapies or therapies in general, and then group interventions. And I say group interventions just to be broad, because one of those is, you know, the example you provided is a 12 step program, which have shown to be very powerful. They don't work for everyone, but they work for a lot of people. Uh, and then there are a lot of other alternatives. So, you know, the first thing is like get an evaluation, speak with your provider, and then see what the best options are for you. Because what I would want to evaluate as a clinician is there might be a substance use or alcohol use disorder, but what else is going on? Are there any health conditions, medical conditions? Are there any comorbidities, meaning like co-occurring mental health conditions, such as depression, anxiety, bipolar, trauma, eating disorders, many other things that could interact and to find a 
treatment program that addresses all of it. Love it. Um, so, okay. I have this theory that all humans have like things that they don't want to feel, things that they don't want to face, things in their past or things in their heart or in their head that they're just like, I don't want to deal with this. This is, oof. Um, and you know, we, we cope with them in various ways. The, the best way of coping with it is to deal with it and to do the work and go to therapy. Other people get like obsessed with sports or bad relationships or good relationships. Like it's kind of, there's a spectrum of things that people do to try and make themselves feel better. And where, at least in my experience, I, some people then turn to the ways to hurt themselves or hurt another person. So for me, it was an eating disorder and then it was alcohol use. And it was kind of just all ways for me to distance myself from the parts of me that I didn't want to know. But I have this theory that it's like, it's all the same stuff. It's all the same kind of set of feelings that we don't want to feel. Um, and I feel, at least for me, I addiction swapped. So I started with an eating disorder and then I hopped into something else and I hopped into something else, but it was all trying to avoid the same feelings. Is there any like backbone to this theory or is it kind of a little bit more um, complex? I mean, obviously it's significantly more complex than that. Um, I just found that like when I dealt with the feelings, all of my addictive behaviors just kind of dissipated and I'm fine now. If you're describing that the underpinning, which you learned later, were your emotions and you're avoiding them, oftentimes like the first things that manifest are the ways in which we escape our emotions because we don't even realize what we're feeling. And so then I go back to, which is a little bit outside of what we're talking about with Natasha, but awareness and mindfulness, knowing how you feel, knowing what's affecting you, that is the first step towards healthy a healthy emotional life. Now that's not going to fix things necessarily with an alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder. However, where there is a pattern that you describe uh, by which there are emotions that you're avoiding and therefore your behavior is manifesting to avoid those emotions. That could be a pattern for some people, but there might be a hundred other ways that it goes. Uh, so again, that's why having a therapist, a provider, really try and work with you to figure out, well, what is your pattern based on your biology, your psychology, your environment, your developmental influences? Because substance use disorders and alcohol use disorders are complex. It's not any one cause that leads to it. It's usually a confluence of factors that determine if someone's going to have a disorder or not. But it's a great example that you provided that and what happened to you. And it's great that it dissipated by realizing that the emotions were what you're avoiding, but that's not always going to happen with everyone. No, definitely. Um, yeah, it's interesting, like just looking, I mean, I only have, I'm a sample size of one, um, but it was really interesting to kind of, yeah, watch. I, I was scared that when I got into recovery, my eating disorder would come back and all of a sudden it just stopped being a thing. Like so many things that I was so afraid of happening just kind of, fell to the wayside it was really beautiful um so I have one one final question um in Natasha's episode she described when her agent at Ford took her out to dinner because her agent wanted to get to know her models better and Natasha described it as meaning so much to her like it was really important to her but she didn't really at that point in her life she wasn't really able to articulate why like why it was so important and why it meant 
so much to her. And that just like cut straight through me because I, I, I know how that feels so much. I know what it's like to be young and to feel lonely and to feel alone and to have somebody who you respect, like care about you and show interest in you when you kind of feel like you don't have anything to offer. And that kind of mind state for me at least is, was at the crux of like my worst eating, my worst time with my eating disorder and with the drinking, like I just felt like there was nothing about me that was worth knowing with anybody. I was so desperately lonely and yet like always had friends, but I felt like nobody ever really knew me. And it's horrible thinking back to how long I lived that way and why I felt like I that was all I deserved in life. But I guess I want to bring it home with like, you know, describing that set of emotions and that way of feeling like, what would you say to someone who's currently in that place right now and who is just feeling lonely and isolated and beaten down by COVID and by the world and, you know, maybe is using substances too much, maybe they're not, but it's just, you know, it's kind of the breeding ground for maladjusted coping patterns? That is a great question. And I think the way I want to answer that is if someone is feeling profound loneliness, it means there's space in their life to connect to someone. And it's a sign that their mind and body needs to connect to someone. So take that as a signal, like an alarm bell going off in your mind and body saying, okay, you're lonely, so get unlonely. And I think if that is hard, getting unlonely, if that's a word, then start with a therapist, a provider, a crisis hotline, and we can provide those in the show notes. If there are people or loved ones in your life that historically have given you strength, go there, seek them out. But if that all feels too hard, do something anonymously, right? So there are a lot of options. And I think the hard thing is that when people feel lonely or have these intense feelings, they may withdraw more. And I would say, scratch that, go towards things that could connect you to others. And then let's talk about productivity and work and that piece. If it's not loneliness in people and it's loneliness in terms of life purpose, then engage or find fulfillment, that things that make you feel good and things that give you worth, even if it's painting a picture or writing a story or going outside and taking some photographs or cooking a meal. And then the caveat is if all of that feels too hard, then I really recommend getting help. I love that so much. I could not agree more. One of the one of the earliest things I learned in my recovery was to practice opposite action. So whenever I was feeling like whenever I was, I was feeling like a angry or I was feeling mad at someone or, or I was feeling lonely and sad and worthless, I would just practice opposite action. I'd call the person I was mad at and I'd chat to them or I would force myself to go and hang out with people. And it really illustrated to me the power of our minds to kind of color our perception of the world and how often like it can get so skewed. Um, and yeah, that was a really, really important thing that I learned to do early on. And then as I slowly started to kind of settle into a slightly less skewed sense of the world around me, I find myself needing to do it less, but I still do need to do it. Like I have an ego and that ego can get me into trouble sometimes. And I don't know, it's it's kind of comforting to realize that I don't have all the answers and I don't need to have all the answers. So, you know, not everything is ever 100% true ever, which is kind of cool. 
No, I'm I'm really glad you brought this up because what I've been thinking about Natasha's episode, to just go back to that, is that in her teens, she started to use because she was feeling like she didn't fit in socially. So let's say there was there's an implied loneliness there. And using allowed her temporarily to get involved with groups maybe that were inaccessible before. But then what happened? Over time, her career maybe her psychology, maybe not dealing with her emotions, sustained the use. And then her social circles promoted that use. And then over time, it just spiraled out of control. And so I think our emotions and our behaviors are intrinsically connected and really important to take a look at. Yes, I could not agree with you more, Ali. Um, We just want to say, listen to our episode with Natasha Silverbell. It's wherever you get your podcasts. It's a particularly powerful one. And I'm very excited to be kicking off the season with Natasha's story. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on Model Mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.